I uh, am privileged to be bringing the word to us this morning, and it is going to be from Acts chapter 13. While you go there, we're in this series of the book of Acts, and what we're doing is just going a a fast-forward pace through this book, looking at the high points, the the real um, important points, which is the sermons that are preached. As you sort of break down the book of Acts, you can break down its sections of story development by looking at the sermons. They are really the, the turning points, the powerful points. And what we've, what we've realized is, um, by looking at Acts that way, is that sermons, yes, on Sunday, and many of the ones that we look at are Sunday Christian gathering sermons, but also open-air preaching and, and proclamation and making public defense of the gospel. God loves to use that as his chosen instrument to build the church, extend his kingdom, strengthen his saints, and save his elect. Sermons about Jesus are God's chosen instrument for the growth of his kingdom. And we've been seeing that. And so the last thing we saw was the the first full-blooded conversion of not just one, but a whole household of Roman Gentiles, which to us, that makes a lot of sense because we're we're a big room full of Gentiles. But in the first century, what what the book of Acts has shown us is that people, the Jews, as as they were forced to scatter because of the persecution, they were going from city to city and they were proclaiming the gospel of Jesus only to Jews. They had not yet understood the, the distinction from old covenant to new covenant that they could proclaim with freeness and openness to Gentiles who had no law in their favor, who had done no ceremonial cleansing. They were allowed to speak to them without any sort of mediation that the gospel of Jesus, dead and resurrected, is for them. And by faith alone, they could receive all of its benefits. They didn't realize that. And and so what we see is that last week, uh, God forced the hand of Peter through vision and guarded armed escort, really, uh, to, to the house of a Gentile named Cornelius, who was a centurion in the army of Rome over in Caesarea. And, uh, and he saw, as he preached the gospel, he saw the whole household converted and baptized. Well, what happens next in chapter 11 is that Peter goes back to Jerusalem and starts answering his critics, because all of the, all of the, the, the traditional Jews, even the Christian Jews, started to uh, get on his case about the fact that he was breaking the law. You're not allowed to go into the house of a Gentile. Do you know what that's doing for our witness as Christians? And his answer was simply God's answer. He said, God compelled me, I went, I preached the gospel, they believed, and the Holy Spirit baptized them, just like he did with us on Pentecost. No distinction. And we're going to dig into how they started uh, wrestling with the implications of the ceremonial law for Gentiles next week in Acts chapter 15. But this week, we see things really take their place. After God did that through Peter, we see through, at the end of Acts 11, Skip Acts 12, a lot of that goes bad for the church, but then into Acts 13, things go very, very well for the church. Not because it's smooth, not because it's persecution-free. They're actually going to see their their apostles uh, uh, jailed and one of them murdered in Acts chapter 12. Not because things are happy and cruisy and easy, but because what we see from Acts 11 through to 13 and 14, we see the church being on mission. Their priorities are set and they are doing all of the right things and God blesses it. So we see that after, after Paul, uh, Peter has, has defended his preaching to Gentiles, then we see people going up all the way north to Syria, to Antioch. And they go there and some people have the bright idea of preaching to non-Jews. And they do that as they were supposed to. And the Gentiles who hear of this gospel for Jew and non-Jew, they repent and believe like they're supposed to. And then they gather into a church and they establish elders and they become the church of Antioch, like Christians are supposed to, be at church and formulate into local bodies. And then uh, Barnabas, who's sent up from Jerusalem to check it all out, he goes and gets Saul and brings Saul over from Tarsus to Antioch because he's the apostle to the Gentiles. So he grabs that apostle, chucks him in the first Gentile church, and he labors there uh, for a, a teaching as a teaching elder, like he was supposed to. That was his commission. And then that Gentile church sends out their best and brightest, Barnabas and Paul, to the mission field like they were supposed to, Uh, expanding, never just building up one local body so strong, but always sending out to the field that others might hear 
the gospel and be saved. And then Paul and Barnabas go on their first missionary journey. They go through Cyprus and they see much fruit there and they go back up into uh, Asia Minor where they go to the second Antioch in our story. There's Antioch in Syria and uh, a west a little bit over towards Although for you, over above the Mediterranean uh, is Antioch in Pisidia. It was quite a common name because the Caesar had been named Antiochus, so they all named their cities after him. And so they go there and they start preaching, and we have today the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul, and it is powerful. And what we see is that this, uh, this amazing response. So look at verse 42 of Acts chapter 13. We're going to look at the response of what the sermon is first, and then we'll go back and and make our way through it. The response was this, verse 42. As they went out after the sermon, Paul and Barnabas, they, they went out from the synagogue. The people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after meeting, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Almost the whole city. And then look at verse uh, 48, and we see another response of what happens. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's Gentiles. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. That really is, there's there's many phrases like that in the book of Acts. That's the theme of the book of Acts. The preaching and expansion of the word of the Lord on mission as his people carry it through preaching and evangelism. So so this is just an amazing time of successful mission between Acts 11 and Acts 13, 14, and onwards, and it's our privilege now to look at the high point as Paul preached this sermon in Acts 13 to the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia. They, they, they land, I just like pointing out how, how much of a, a hard man Paul was with Barnabas. Uh, uh, as they, they arrived by boat up to the mainland again, uh, they wanted to go into Antioch, a main city, so that they could preach and go to the, the main synagogues where the Jews gathered, start preaching Christ from the Old Testament. But they had a 200-kilometer walk ahead of them. So they just walked 200 kilometers to the synagogue, which I know we don't really, we just chuck it in our Google Maps. We, we work on minutes. How many minutes would it take to drive? It'd be about two hours. It's from here down to Byron Bay plus some if you were to just walk. I know most people who go to Byron Bay walk because they can't afford cars, but the point is that this is an enormous stretch. They jump on foot off of the ship and just start walking because they had a mission and nothing would stop them. I love that about Paul and Barnabas. I love that about their missionary heart. And what, what would happen is you go into a synagogue and on a Sabbath they would read, read a part of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, and then they would read a section of the prophets. And then if in the crowd there was a visiting, uh, uh, visiting teacher, visiting rabbi, they would give that man an opportunity to come up and, and encourage the people from the word of the Lord. They, they loved guest preachers. And Paul was visiting and he was recognizably a rabbi. So do you feel a little bit sorry for them? Like Paul just snuck in, looked like an innocent rabbi, and they said, brothers, would you like to come and share anything? Do you have a word of encouragement for the people? <laughs> oh, did he? Yes, he took it up, he stood upon their platform, and this is the sermon that he preached. From Acts chapter 13, verse 16, I'll be reading. So Paul stood up. And motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, that is, that is devout Jews and also Gentile converts in the synagogue. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, 
who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us as their children by raising Jesus. As he'd also written in the second psalm, and now he starts quoting Old Testament scriptures to make his case. You, and very likely this may have even been portion of the reading that day. He says in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he's spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known, therefore, to you, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that if you heard it, you would not believe, even if someone tells it to you. May God bless the reading of Paul's amazing first recorded sermon. What we see here, we're going to take three parts. We're going to really see the main theme as Paul unravels Israel's history. That's what he starts out doing. That's what we've seen Peter do before and Stephen do before. They sort of get on the Jews' good side and really affirm to them, I'm not preaching a foreign God. I'm an Israelite preaching to you the word of the God of Israel. Let me just recount our history. And out of the history, they pluck lessons which they apply to the fact that we killed Jesus and you must repent and believe in him. And what, what he's going to pull out, the themes of today's history lesson for Israel is that God is in the habit of graciously choosing to save some, and when that salvation is opposed by others, he rejects them. God saves his chosen people and rejects the opponents. That's, that's the theme we're going to see as Paul recaps Israel's history. <coughs> and he gives the examples through these different time portions. Pardon me. <coughs> We see, first of all, in verse 17, he, he, he points out this theme with the Jews in, and Egypt. God's chosen people, the Jews, being saved, Egypt being rejected for opposing it. Verse 17, he says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, sovereign, grace, loving, blessing, saving, and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Again, blessing, loving, gracious. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. That is that he rejected and opposed the enemies of Egypt because they tried to enslave God's people. When a superpower on earth enslaved God's people who he had graciously chosen, God offered mercy. And when that mercy was rejected, he raised up his right arm and punished those people. And 
the people of Israel, the, the Jews, got a whole bunch of riches from Egypt because God opened their heart to give all their gold and their, their pots and their pans and their cooking utensils to, to the Jews as they were going out. And so they plundered Egypt without a fight on their way out. That is the first example of God choosing to save and then rejecting those who would oppose. Then we see in verse 18 and 19, the Moses and Joseph leadership, being God's, through whom God was graciously saving, and then the evil nations of Canaan who opposed God's people. So we see in verse 18 and 19, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. That put up with them is not a, not a, a reluctant, resistant, you know, putting up with these darn kids on the long road trip through the desert. Uh, rather, that, that putting up with them is a quote from Deuteronomy, which is probably better translated as he bore with them like a father. He was bearing with all of their troubles and struggles as a blessing father. So he was, there's his gracious salvation. He was bearing with them for those 40 years in the wilderness. And then he destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan. And just like he did with Egypt, he took the goods of Canaan and left it in place for the Jews to come in, inhabit the buildings they didn't build, the homes they didn't build, the farming stock they didn't have to raise, the land they didn't have to toil. This blessing. God was choosing to save and he was rejecting those who would oppose him, even though those nations were offered mercy. And then it happens again. A third example is the period of the judges and the Jews. And now we start seeing this, this troubling theme if you're a Jew. Now the people who are being punished are the Jews. And now we're seeing it's not just God's people and the Jews, but now it's God's people having to, re the prophets and, and the judges having to rebuke the people, the wider people, the Jews. And so you see this troubling theme pick up. So we see in verse 20 to 22, all of this took place over about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges. That, that, that's God's blessing. We see in, in the book of Judges that God was gracious to send them leaders and rulers and saviors. But the people, evil in their heart, turned to the other nations and said, we actually are very impressed with the palaces with the chariots, with the thrones, and with the crowns. We would prefer, instead of a God-sent judge, a king, a human king on earth who we pay homage to. That, that's what they demanded, and Samuel the prophet was told to, to give the people what they, what they sinfully desired, and he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, who was starting well but became an evil king. So God had been gracious to them in sending the judges... And this time the opponents to God's plan is the Jews themselves, their own worst enemy. They wanted the kings, God gave it to them, and then, you can see, he rejected Saul. Are you seeing the pattern here? It says in verse 22, and when he had removed him, he raised up David. Again, the opposition to God's work was coming from the king and the people, and so God opposed them, removed, rejected the king. We see this theme Two more times, in verse 22 and 23, we see David and Jesus. And here, he doesn't even mention opposition. He, he's sort of sowing into their minds the reality that no one would oppose David, right? We all, we're all Jews. We love David. We're all on his side. Yes. Same with Jesus. He mentions David and Jesus. And it's, it's sandwiched in the middle of these five examples where, where God was saving graciously and people were opposing. God was saving graciously and people were opposing. God was saving graciously through David and Jesus. And then two more examples about how God was saving and the people were opposing. So here he says in verse 22 and 23 how he raised up David and he made these promises and said, and David is, is a man after my heart. And, and, and then Paul says, and this man's offspring is Jesus, who is the savior that he promised. And then he just keeps on going because if he stops there, the people will get very angry in the synagogue. You're not supposed to talk about Jesus like that. And then lastly, he says, and then there was John the Baptist and the Jews. Verse 24 and 25. Before the coming of the Christ, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And then he goes and quote, quote, quotes John. And, and, and now you hear that as a Jew, as a first century, good, law-abiding, devout Jew in synagogue on early Sabbath morning, you don't tell us that we needed repentance. 
It's the Gentiles that need to repent. It's the Gentiles that are supposed to, if they're becoming Jews through the old system, they do the baptism. Like that, That's what you do to unclean people. Jews don't need baptism. This is, why, this is why John was so offensive in his generation when he preached. He was telling people, religious leaders even, you need to be cleansed and baptized so you can become one of God's people. And so you see this theme now coming, saying that through John the Baptist, God was announcing the good news of salvation. Again, God's gracious salvation. But now the Jews are the ones held up. That if they would not repent through baptism, they would be the ones that God turns aside. That he turns against and rejects. So this theme is coming through. Yes, like the Egyptians... Like the Canaanite nations, like the sinful generation in the wilderness, like King Saul, you don't want to be the ones rejecting God's saving purpose. That's what's coming through in this history lesson. And next we will see the second main point of his sermon. He turns directly to the reality of Jesus. And here we see in Paul's, Paul's working of the logic of this sermon, He's saying Jesus is now the climax, the high point, the clearest and fullest example of God's saving grace, which you do not want to reject. Well, all of those other salvations and grace and choosing and mercy, they should not have been rejected, and you were condemned if you did. But now there has never been a greater grace of salvation, and therefore there is no worse thing to reject than the message of Jesus sent from heaven. So, so look at verse 26. He now focuses on Jesus. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, that's the Jews, and those among you who fear God, that's Gentiles who have been converted, again, to us has been sent the message of this salvation, in brackets, so don't be found rejecting it. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand through the utterances of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath. Yes, we just read them on this Sabbath, Paul is saying to them. We just read it. Did you hear? Did you understand that it points to Jesus? And he says, they fulfilled them by condemning him. Even though they read every Sabbath, the prophets and the Pentateuch, they still fulfilled them by falling into the same pattern. God's salvation. And the leaders of Jerusalem became the opposers who God rejected. By condemning him through Pilate, by making false accusations, by giving him over, by buying him for 30 pieces from Judas, from uh, piercing him in the side, from doing all that they did, they fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture against themselves. And they killed Jesus. Every book, every chapter... Every prophecy that they studied every day for hours was pointing to this Jesus and they missed him and fulfilled those same stories, prophecies, chapters and books by their condemning. Hence, you can see the guilt of this generation. You, you get a sense of the guilt of these people. If it, was, if it was bad enough to see God destroy Egypt and lead you and your brothers out into the wilderness through this mighty outstretched arm and miracle after miracle after miracle and this amazing light show on a mountain and a booming voice. If it was condemning to see all of that and then turn away from God in your heart and want to worship the gods of the nations, how much worse is it if you see God himself in the flesh, you have God himself minister miracles all around the land of Judea through his miracles. You reject him. You are in a far worse place. However, in verse 30, we see the great undoing or the great rolling on of salvation purposes in verse 30. Look at verse 30 as God is the Savior who sent Jesus to die and he is the one who resurrected him. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. That's the proclamation of Paul. This is the continuing theme. God chose to save, 
I know I'm being repetitive. I, I want us to see the themes here so the sermon makes sense that Paul preached. God chose to save and rejected those who opposed. And they opposed God by killing and refusing Jesus. So they earned God's rejection. But these are all very big claims. To claim all of this about a, a backwater carpenter, I've got no problem with chippies, but, but it's just not a very impressive God-ruling-the-earth type of job. Uh, and when you're saying that this slightly poor chippy from like Nazareth uh, who didn't have much of an army, a people, uh, he didn't write a book, that guy is the son of David to rule the world. And God raised him from the dead. You, you start asking questions. You, you, you're allowed to sort of, sort of if, if you weren't in Israel and you didn't see the miracles of the first thing you're hearing of this Jesus guy, it, 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 you want to start searching scripture. You want to be a Berean and start working through the scriptures and understanding if this is what they've all been pointing to. And so Paul, like a good preacher, like a good Jew, quotes the Old Testament to prove his point. He goes to, first of all, Psalm 2. So you see in verse 33, he says, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, the promises to the Father. He, he fulfilled the promises to us by raising Jesus as it is written in the second psalm. So, so this first one is not a, not a proof, but rather ju he's just saying this is what the second psalm was pointing to. And the second psalm said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In the Bible, uh, God here and there refers to kings as sons of God. He even goes so far in one place to, to call kings little g gods. They are the people who are acting in his place, ruling and reigning the world. And, and what this Psalm 2 is saying is that God is raising up a king, and on the day that he sits on the throne, it's God saying, today I have begotten you as my son. You are, you are now a son to me in your rule and office and position as king. That, that's what Psalm 2 is, was prophesying. There's going to be one coming who God looks at, makes a king and says, there, now you're, now you're my son. Not just a son like any other king, but my true son, the chosen king. And Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus from the dead the day that he was raised from the grave and earned all authority on heaven and earth, which was now his, whereby he would go and sit at the right hand of the Father, he's saying that that resurrection is the echo in history of God saying, you are my son. Take the throne. Sit down. Have all authority in heaven and on earth. That's what the resurrection was. And then he goes on to, to prove it a little bit more. He quotes Isaiah 55. And he says, the fact that uh, he, uh, to prove the fact that he was raised from the dead, no more to go back to corruption. So, so now he's connecting the dots and saying, now, I said that the resurrection is the day of his enthronement. Let me connect these dots. I'm saying this, Paul says, because God said to the king that he would have all of the promises of David. And if you know your Jewish promises, the promises of David was an everlasting, eternal king sitting on a throne over a kingdom that would never die. So if you're the one who gets the promises of David, you have to live forever. You cannot die. And if you do, your body can't rot. God has to bring you back. So Paul connects those dots by quoting Isaiah and says, I will give you the holy, sure blessings of David. And again, that means an everlasting kingdom where you won't die, O king. So he must be this everlasting, undying king. And then again, he says in verse 35, developing his argument, therefore he also says in another psalm, Psalm 16, verse 10, you will not let your holy one see corruption. And he connects all of these dots in verse 36. He says, so David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was buried. And his, his body saw corruption. He died. So, so the one receiving the promises of David couldn't have been David. The king on the throne, who is the son, could not have been David. The one who will not see corruption and therefore be the holy one cannot be David. It has to be somebody like David, after David, receiving the promises of David, but not David. And that man will be known to us as somebody who comes, fulfills scripture, and resurrects from the dead. The one God resurrects from the dead is going to be king of the world. That's the rule. And Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the teacher, 
the crucified one is the resurrected one, therefore is the king to whom sinners must repent and believe. That's the flow of his sermon. Only Jesus has been raised in such a manner, and so only Jesus is worthy of the praise and faith and your repentance. That is the essence of Paul's sermon. But on theme and right on message, he makes a demand for the reception of God's grace and not to be found as those who are opposing God's grace. Don't be like the Egyptians, the generation in the wilderness, the Canaanites, Saul of Kish. Don't be like them. Don't be like the ones who killed Jesus, but receive it. So look now at verse 38. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. You have to get ready for this line. Take a breath. Get ready for this line. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And for everyone who believes in him, they are freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The plea, the heart, the imploration, the exhortation in Paul's heart saying, do not let this pass. <laughs> How many animals have you carried to Jerusalem? How many coins, how much money have you spent buying animals at Jerusalem to kill, to try and be freed from your sin? How many baptisms, sprinklings, blood sprinklings, offerings, sacrifices, ceremonial washings have you gone through to try and be forgiven of your sins? How many, how many strivings have you made? Laws have you sought to obey? Scripture you've tried to memorize? People you've tried to, to bring along with you into this perfect covenant of God and you labor and you labor and no one has ever been made free of sin and condemnation through the law because we are all bound to it in guilt and will always be condemned by it the, the further the Jews went into this tunnel into this cavern of God's majestic law the further they went in the more they were sealed in their doom because they could not obey it and be freed from it Jesus though Jesus free from sin, perfectly fulfilling the law, coming into this great cavern, saving all of those who had been condemned under its just and legal condemnation for our sin. Jesus, untouched by his own sin, engulfed our sin into himself by imputation. And God treated him as in our place. The word freed here is translated, it's more interpreted. It's not a free and perfect translation. The real word in the Greek behind this, and it's fine to translate it free as long as we know, the word behind it is justified. In Jesus, we are justified, that is, made right according to the law, by things from which you could never be made right according to the law, by doing the law. Jesus came, fulfilled the law, by doing two things. First of all, the law was against you because it demanded your perfection, and without perfection, you would be condemned. And secondly, even if you bring perfection, you become perfect somehow, you still have your past payments to pay for, your past sins, your past debts. So the law both demands perfection and demands payment, and Jesus satisfies both, therefore he frees us from both. He comes and is perfect in our place, satisfying the law, justifying us from that demand. He comes paying our punishment of sin, of, of death and suffering under God's wrath, therefore justifying us from that law command. And now the way out is free. The way out is clear. The way out is glorious. Because... It didn't hit quite hard when we heard it. We're used to it. We're used to John 3.16 and, and all those other passages. You, you hear all of this amazing covenantal promises of blessing and forgiveness. As a Jew, you're, especially in the first legalistic century, you're, you're still expecting, okay, but what do we do to get the blessings? I'm so glad Jesus did that. I'm so glad Jesus did things. I'm so glad God gave grace. But what do we do 
to get it. What's the new list of Ten Commands? Where's the new temple? I'll go there. I'll do it. If I need to do something, I'll do it. But nestled in this promise is the only condition that God commands. The only thing that he makes for people to bring. Look at verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from everything. The one who believes. Not accrues a new righteousness, not obeys a new set of laws, not attempts enough and becomes good enough according to some new standard, but simply believe. If you, if you understand what Jesus is saying, you're a sinner, you're condemned, I am righteous, I am saviour, believe. Then, then to believe that is to turn away from sin, to turn away from our own righteousness and trust Jesus entirely. The, the words otherwise used by Paul and in other places used by Peter is repent and have faith. Or we can summarize it all as believe. Believe. How simple a command is that? And yet even doing that, we require the Holy Spirit to give to us the heart to believe. And he does. He does exactly that that day when he poured out his great salvation. But Paul's not finished his sermon. Paul has just outlined the amazing grace that is on offer in Jesus. However, as is the pattern, the pouring out of grace is usually met with opposition and those people get rejected and condemned. So Paul ends with this warning, this, this severe warning. Just as all of history is gone, let it not be the case for you today, friend, right here. As Paul would say then, I want to say today, do not let history repeat itself for you. While God offers this open door of salvation, do not be found to oppose it. In verse 40, Paul says this. Beware, therefore. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's God's salvation, there's always rejection. Beware, therefore. Where I proclaim the salvation to you today, beware. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if one tells you. Now, I know if you've got any experience at a revivalistic churches, that's a, that's, that's, that's a quote telling us how good God's blessings are going to be poured out onto this generation, right? You wouldn't even believe it if I told you God's going to do an amazing work. Give, come and pray, come down the front. This is a verse saying, not to God's people, I'll bless you so much, you won't even understand. This is a verse saying to the scoffers, the people who do not receive God, who are, who are mocking the purposes of God, God saying to them, stand back, sit down, and watch. I'm going to bring a judgment through a foreign nation upon my own people. You, so severe, so feral, so demonic, so, so horrible in its, in its wrath that you would not believe me even if I outlined the details. So just sit back and watch it until the sword comes for you. That's what Paul's warning. As this salvation is put out, don't stand back. Don't mock this carpenter Jesus. Don't, don't, don't scoff at the salvation that God offers as one would worship a crucified man as God. Don't scoff. For God opposes and rejects those who do not receive his offer of grace that we did not deserve in the first place. It's been our habit to be asking as of these sermons, after we summarize them, to be asking four questions. How does this transition help us develop? How does this sermon help us understand the narrative of God's salvation throughout all of Scripture? Secondly, we've been asking, how does this transition our understanding from old covenant to new covenant? What's the distinction that we see here? We've been asking, how does it preach Christ? And fourthly, what modern day applications can we learn as Christians and a church on mission? And firstly, we can see here how, how this sermon develops the narrative of salvation is that he is no longer a prophet coming saying there's a Messiah coming. The son of David will come soon. Prepare your hearts. John was the last prophet to be sent with that message. Now the message is, our God has come and gone, 
And all the promises to our fathers have been fulfilled now. And he swung open the door of the free offer of salvation to Jews and to Gentiles. And so now the call is, don't be found on the station when the train is leaving. Don't miss your opportunity for God's salvation. Now is the, the urgency of the apostles, the urgency of the missionaries is, salvation has now peaked, been fulfilled in this historical climax of Christ in the Middle East, and now from, from here until the end of the world, the urgency, the mission is break down the walls, get to the world, bring them in, believe in the Savior. And the unique call for the Jews was, you especially do not oppose your own Messiah. Secondly, we can see how does this transition us, this understanding of, of this sermon, how does this transition us from the old covenant that God made with Abraham and through Moses, how does this transition us to the new covenant that he has made through grace in Christ? Well, the covenant of works or the covenant of law, the old covenant, we can call that the covenant of law, the covenant of law, its, its basic premise was, you obey, you get life. I mean, you read through Deuteronomy, you see that. You, you do well, you get well. You, you do the right things, you get blessings. You do the bad things. You sin, you break God's law. You, you offend his holiness, you get punishment. Often death, pretty harsh punishments, but nothing in relation to what we really deserve, but that's the premise. Old covenant, covenant of law, obey or die. New covenant, covenant of grace, it is called, is no longer do or die, but believe and be saved. Fundamentally different premises, fundamentally different conditions, fundamentally different covenants. Believe and be saved without any doing. For Jesus has come and fulfilled the law and done all the doing we need. Therefore, for you is only left to obey. Ah, for you is only left to believe. And not even love. Not even love enough. Just believe by faith and the law is fulfilled for you in Jesus Christ. We see that the old covenant said do. The new covenant says believe. The old covenant says, keep yourself clean and righteous. The new covenant said, Jesus kept himself clean and righteous and makes us clean and righteous, so believe. The old covenant was so powerless that as we heard today in the London Baptist Confession, it could only condemn the people in it. But the new covenant is so powerful, it saved people before it was even established. The new covenant was so powerful, it saved the people who had faith before the new covenant was even established through Jesus Christ. The, the promises that were echoing that would be fulfilled in the covenant were able along the way. The, the echoes, a glimmer of this covenant was able to save you in the Old Testament. That even if you lived in the Old Covenant, you could be saved by the new covenant that wasn't even here yet. That is how powerful, how trans-temporal, all over time, no time, space, materialistic binding on this covenant. God could save all and any whenever he wanted through it because it was so powerful. Yes, even the Old Testament saints were saved by faith alone. The new covenant in Jesus Christ is so powerful, it reached back and justified all who had faith. And thence we see from this sermon the great distinction between old and new covenant, both instituted by God. But one was leading to the other, wherein was full salvation. Then we can ask, how does this sermon of Paul preach Christ? And of course, it, he was all through it, but, but what particular points did Paul make? I want to say that he was the climax, or he was the fulfillment, he was the fulfiller of three things. First of all, Jesus is the climax of all human history. It's impossible to be on the wrong side of history if you are on the side of Christ. He is the beginning who spoke it. He is the overarching purpose. He is the foundation. And he is the last final point that it is all leading to, the, the telos, as the, as the Greeks would say. He is the alpha, the beginning, and the omega, the coming one in the end. Jesus is the climax of all of history. It is all heading to him and all centered on him. Our high point was the crucifixion and resurrection. But we also see what Paul is saying is that he is the fulfiller or the climax of the law. 
He was the one who came and paid the debts incurred. He was the one who came and met its standards. And he was the one who came and, and perfectly exemplified what the law looks like. So now we can read the law and ask, what does that look like in flesh? And we can read the Gospels and see Jesus. And we see the two. One scripture written, one word incarnate. Jesus is the fulfillment, perfect fulfillment of God's law. And he is the climax, thirdly, of all of the Old Testament promises. Every promise made to any patriarch or any of the prophets or any of the people of God, they are all ultimately climaxing and coalescing in Jesus. He is the diamond that if you, you put the light to it, it, it fragments out into all of the different covenants and promises and blessings made under the old covenant. They're all found in him. Therefore, to receive Jesus is to receive every good promise of blessing that God has ever spoken to humanity. Salvation for the whole world is found only in him. And so let us ask this finally. What modern day application can we learn as a church and individuals? First of all, if we, can, if we can see this as an amazing sermon with amazing results, then we should first follow the example of the Church of Antioch. The Church of Antioch, not the Antioch he preached at, but the Antioch he was sent from. That we would seek and desire and pray to be a church who is willing to give our best resources, our money, our prayers, and our best and brightest preachers and evangelists to others, to the unreached people, to the mission field where our brothers and sisters lost still in their sin, perish millions by the day in their sin, many of them swept into death never to see the light or even hear the name of Jesus Christ. If we, if we proclaim that this sermon by Paul is, is great, we love the advancement of the word of the Lord, then we must be those who are seriously praying and wondering, has God sent me? Has God chosen me to go? Or if not going, is there someone here that I, must, I should encourage to go? Or, or should I somehow amass what I can to send resources to the mission field? We should be those, like the church of Antioch, that are at its healthiest when we are focusing on the mission field. Also from the sermon we must hear, and this is what I want to say to everybody today who is not yet in relation, in covenant with Jesus and therefore freed from your sin. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's law and requirements of you. If none of the theological old covenant language really makes sense, you at least know this, that you are way too sinful for God if he has any standards, especially God-sized standards, you're way too sinful for God to receive you. You know with the conscience that you have, and maybe you've never stood foot in a church before, you've never read scripture, but you have enough of God's witness in your mind to know that if God is good, you will not be in his dwelling place after your death. That regardless of however good or bad other people are, you know that you are sinful, that God will punish you or he's not a good, fair God. And to you, the... The devil would tempt you to be religious, to, to start changing your life and being good enough, to do something good and, 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 and follow the rules and please your parents and please your neighbors and, and go to a church and rack up some brownie points with God and you'll have a chance. You'll, you'll tip the scales a little bit in your favor and fingers crossed he'll, he'll miss some of the other things you've swept under the rug and he'll tag you into heaven. But friends, what the devil tempts is, is works-based religion. And what Jesus offers is a finished and final salvation. That it really is too good to be true. Let me twist the word to the prophet this morning and say, really, if I could tell you everything about what it is to be a Christian, freed from sin, with heaven to come, the Holy Spirit in our hearts, you wouldn't believe it. So instead, just receive Christ and enter into it. You have nothing that God wants. Your good, righteous deeds are really still filthy. He doesn't want them. He doesn't demand you to go through a course, make yourself righteous, obey some laws. He just desires you to lay down your weapons of rebellion, lay down your committing of sin, come to him, confess, be forgiven, be made righteous, which the law cannot do, and be made new, and walk out of the grave of sin. Walk into freeness and fullness of life by being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is the free and perfect 
covenant of Jesus Christ. And the, the option is yours. Believe or be rejected. Let's pray. Father God, as we, we read what Paul has said, and it is, it is true that we must confess that we did not ever even deserve the gospel message to be proclaimed to us. We never deserved a second chance as human, as, as those of the human race descended from Adam. We never deserved a second outreaching of your gracious heart towards us. And yet, God, you have done that. You have, you have reached to those who are guilty in sin, who deserve nothing from you but eternity in hell. To us has been given these amazing promises. And the greatest of all of your promises was that, that if we believe on Jesus Christ, we are saved. Completely, fully, finally, and freely saved. We thank you, Lord, that you, that you have sent your son to die. You gave him our sin. Thank you that you rose him. And we exalt him now and give him praise as the resurrected Lord and Jesus. We, we, we praise our Lord Jesus because he's our, he's our God, our king, our shepherd, our priest, and our great prophet. We desire to live for him. And therefore, God, I, I pray that those who you've brought in him through your covenant, that you would make us missionaries, evangelists, holy people who have the word of the gospel on our tongue and inflamed in our heart, that we would spread your word to any and everyone. I pray that you would awaken in hearts of some today that they must be proclaimers of your word, that they must go to the, to the ends of the earth carrying your gospel to spread it in mission. Lord, I, I pray also that those who do not yet believe, who are still in their sins, who are still guilty, who still know that the law condemns them, who still know that hell awaits them, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would send your spirit to give them a new heart because no one is too sinful, lost, broken, or filthy or rebellious that you cannot fully forgive them and bring them to salvation in your name. We pray this, we trust this, and we thank you for this glorious gospel. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.